Hi everyone! Welcome to the Curiously Creative Podcast. Curiously Creative loves creativity and inspiring people to follow their own creative curiosities. We hope to bring you a bit of joy and inspiration with everything we do so that you can fall in love with creativity too. I'm your host, Akriti Lee, and each month I share conversations with all kinds of creative people who share their journeys and unique perspectives around their own creativity. We hope these conversations help us understand our own creative process and have the courage to live more creative lives. Today, I'm incredibly honoured, humbled and grateful to be presenting an inspiring, thoughtful and generous being, Welby Ings. Welby Ings is first and foremost a storyteller. He's also an award-winning academic, educator, designer, filmmaker and playwright. He is an elected fellow of the British Royal Society of Arts and a consultant to many international organisations on issues of creativity and learning. He is a professor in design at the Auckland University of Technology and in 2001 was awarded the Prime Minister's inaugural Supreme Award for Tertiary Teaching Excellence. He is also the author of his latest book, Disappearing Teaching, which talks about the ability to change educational practices that have been shaped by anxiety, ritual and convention. So I start off by saying thank you for taking this time with me because I know you're so in demand at the moment, especially with the new book. So I guess it's safe to say, I think for you, Wobby, that you are a multi-passionate, a multi-disciplined creative from teaching, lecturing, writing, researching, consulting, advising, illustrating, movie making, graphic designing, public speaking, thought leading, all with such inspiring impact and recognition on various levels. So I guess the first place to start would be how did it all start out for you? Has teaching always been the thing that you wanted to pursue? Because I know coming out of school the first thing you did was teacher's college? Yes, but then yeah. I got thrown out. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so um, it's, a, it's actually a very good question and to try and answer it concisely, when I was a little boy I wanted to make things. I was obsessed with making things. So I wasn't allowed near my sister's toys because I used to break them apart to see how they worked. So I was always fascinated with how things were made. And I, and I also loved storytelling. And so I thought up until the time I was about 12, I wanted to be a storyteller, but there was no such job. But mm. I was obsessed with it. I used to tell my sister's stories. I'd sit on the school bus and tell people stories. But I couldn't read or write. And because I couldn't read or write, I think what happened was that I became I became very attached to stories, especially stories that were told either orally, like yes. I lived in a family where we'd go out for, for something and come home, but the stories that Dad told at the table about it were much more interesting than when we were actually there. But they were true. But even at a young age, I realised that that skill of editing an event and telling it again, it's still true, but it has a... It has a dramatic arc, if you want. It has peaks. And so yeah. I realized that it was a skill. So before I could even articulate it, I was very attracted to how things are constructed, either as devices mm -hmm. or as stories. But it was a standing joke at Pukiato Primary that I wanted to be a storyteller because, you know, everyone went, yeah, and you get fives on your report for reading and writing. In fact, it was interesting you were saying something before, that sometimes it's only in retrospect we see the truth of something. Yes. So now I look at my job and I realise I'm a storyteller, not meaning a fake person. I take information and make it, I retell it so it's clearer for people. That's right. Or yeah. I help people draw their stories out. Mm. Or... Um, 
I can so on one level you see those coming coming out as artifacts like films or books, mm. but on another level and you see I I love my job. Restory themselves to get themselves to another horizon. So I ended up being a storyteller. And so how did you equate storytelling to teaching? It might sound like I'm being a bit wimpish here, but I didn't have a good schooling. And I learned very early that great teaching is not about delivering information. It's about growing the people with whom you're working. And so when you are the bin monitor and do incinerator duty and Mm -hmm. make sure that the toilet rolls in the toilet, when that's your job in the world at nine and ten years old, Mm -hmm. you grow suspicious of the idea of somebody who can deliver a lesson. But your heart gets touched by people who sit down with you and help you find something out, who ask you questions as if you're not stupid. And so from a very early age, I understood that if I was going to learn, I had to do it by doing things. I had to be physically engaged with it and emotionally engaged. So from an early age, I learned that teaching is actually designing learning environments. It's not about disseminating information. It's about growing belief in people, growing belief and, and growing the ability to question well, question richly. So to pull that back... The idea of teaching is not about designing and delivering information. Mm. It's about designing environments in which people learn yes. and being consciously and constantly attentive to that. So just going a bit back into how you said you didn't know, you couldn't read or write till mm-hmm. you were 14. What happened was a, a dynamic that I think hits a lot of kids who appear to fail at school, is that I, I still take a long time to get information. But once I get it, I turn acrobats with it very quickly. Mm. And I work with people even doing their PhDs who are are like that. For instance, you go, oh, well, we can learn the software. And they go, oh, oh God, it takes me so long to learn it. But once they've got it, they're absolutely incredible with it. So, But what happens is that we reward in schools people who can pick up information quickly. Mm. So people who are often deeply reflective or look at everything from multiple perspectives, they don't pick up stuff quickly. They pick it up deeply, and that can take time, but they learn that there's something wrong with them. So when most of our testing at school is like pub quizzes. You get questions, you ask to respond, Mm -hmm. whether that's straight away or in a two-hour exam with 50 questions. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I got tested and tested and tested in public. So reading, teacher would say, read this aloud. And there were other kids listening, and you knew that some of it you couldn't do, so you adopted the you, a self-defense mechanism very early, going, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. We don't fucking yeah. know about that. And so then anger comes in, yes. and then you protect yourself by by building on their picture of you as, as a problem, as having a problem. And we actually used language. Euphemistically, we called it special, but everybody knows what it is to be in the special class. And it doesn't mean that you're doing two languages and, and everybody's consulting you. So I learned that I was I, ha- I was a problem rather than I had a different way of learning. And so I just came to reinforce that problem, that I had a problem or difficulty with reading and writing. The truth was that when I wasn't being tested to hell, I could get meaning from reading and writing, not a lot, because I felt no desire to do it, because I was told that that was territory of failure. You know, so I didn't. So, in fact, I developed most of my learning from taking things apart and seeing how they worked. Yeah. But when I came to realize, and it's not, although we are, it's easy for us to tell a single event going, this turned the story, this is not the world of cinema. No. It's not. It's incremental. You put the pieces together. The difficulty was, as I started putting pieces together and realized I wasn't stupid, I became very angry. 
and very disruptive. And so I, I behaved badly, mm. and that's partly why I got expelled from school. And then there was Teachers College. And then Teachers well. College. I, I was very attracted to teaching mm. because I thought there has to be, if this is happening to me, mm. and I was in the class with these other mm. kids like me, and I knew some of them were really bright, and I thought, I'm now really interested in this. But, of course, I went into Teachers College, and it was it was beige. They asked us to sit an IQ test, and I was shocked because I'd been reading around how IQ actually didn't measure intelligence mm. at all. And I said, well, I'm not going to sit an IQ test. That's rubbish. It doesn't measure learning. Why are you using that something that primitive? And we're at, you know, at a teacher's college doing a degree. Right. And they went, no, everybody's going to sit it. So I went, and, and I said, well, I won't. And they said, that's fine. Then you won't fulfill the course prescription, and you won't pass. You won't get through. So with my hands, you know, arms stretched up my back, I went in, and I tried to get the lowest mark I could. I tried to do really, really badly. And at the end of the t- a few days later, they, they called me into the office, and they said, there's been a real problem here. Either you have one IQ point above brain death, you know, or you are being, you have deliberately sabotaged this. Yeah. And I said, look, I can put down on the table five articles to show you how flawed this process is. Yeah. So either, let me turn it around the other way, either you have you have made a very, very bad decision in the kinds of intelligence that you'll let in here because you interviewed me and you went off my marks and got me into teacher's college. So obviously there's something really wrong because you have somebody with one IQ point above brain death. Or you accept that I critiqued the, the principle of IQs mm. in practice and that to get a mark that low, perhaps you have to be very bright to get something, something that, that low. low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that started off a very bad relationship at the Teachers College. With such an intense amount of resistance and challenges and negative experiences, so to speak, and then, like you said, you were angry initially as well, how did you channel that into a positive outlook and keep on going in the direction that you've been going until now? It's a really good question. And, you know, I'm not a golden boy. No. I, I made mm. some really bad mistakes yeah. along the way. And, and it, it wasn't until my late 20s that I realized that the thing that was screwing everything up was my ego. Yes. I was making it all about me. The difficult thing with teaching is that you can use it as a banquet table for your ego. You can become an adored popular teacher, and all they do is develop disciples. Mm. They don't grow other people's learning. They grow appreciation societies. Mm. And um, and I was doing that I was because my ego was just out of control. And then I was lucky enough to come across some people who thought, who um, were honest enough with me to tell me, to point out stuff that I was doing. I'll make it really clear. I'm flawed. And I always say to people when they come into my office, I go, you can walk out and throw any of this away. Well, I guess everyone is flawed, in, I think. It's more being open to awareness, I suppose, of yourself and using those failures to redirect mm. rather than stay in one position. And being prepared to be tough on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I love my job, but mm. I leave it every three years to do something else, mm. whether that's to go work on a shearing gang or do some volunteer work for something. I leave it for something else so that I constantly remember or I'm confronted with what it is not to know yes. something. And it helps me keep a perspective because this is actually, um, being a lecturer or a professor is a quite a dangerous job because you can come to believe that you actually are the expert. Mm. That's, it's not your job to be an expert, not if you're an educator. It's not your job to be the expert. It's your job to help other people become experts. experts. Yes. It's a different thing. So for me, 
the trap was that I was obsessed with my ego and I didn't know it. Mm. And slowly I was able, I saw more and more examples of it and I thought, all right, okay, I've got to find a way. If, there's, a, there's a guy, John Dewey, a philosopher, who I've always loved, very humane. And he made an observation that I find incredibly profound and I use it as my guide. He said, people's fundamental need is to be valued. Mm. So if you're going to work well with them, work from the Work from the position that they need to be valued. Even those people who oppose you, don't let them hate you. No. Don't work consciously so they don't hate you, and so that they see value out of working with you. Yes. And you, to do that, you have to decenter yourself. Yes. You have to do it. Mm. But if you want to have influence, if you want, if you want your ideas to take root because you genuinely believe they might make a better world, then you have to push your ego out of the road so other people can have their value first. Yes. The simple point is, in the end I've come to the point is I would much rather certain values I hold take root than have the momentary flash of adoration because that will die within five years after you're dead. Right. You're just going to be yeah. a photo on someone's wall. But an idea isn't like that. An mm. idea is a living thing. It won't be in the form that you worked with initially. It will, take, it will change. So that's but what it never I th- really disappears, so to speak. It always, never really disappears. It's always morphing and Absolutely. re-existing in many, yes. many ways. It's potentially eternal. Yeah. Our physicality and our ego is not eternal. Yes, it's right. not eternal. kind of reminds me of a quote by Maya Angelou, who says something like, anything that is human is not alien to me. Mm. And I think that goes on either of those spectrums of, like, even if there's resistance against you in certain ways, you can find ways to give that value or try to use it to move Mm -hmm. forward Mm -hmm. and realize that we all are kind of in the same boat and trying to figure things out. There's an even more ruthless, um, but uh, very (laughs) profound, Tacticus, the, the Roman senator, once said, we hate most those we injure. And I think that's very profound that never, if you're working with somebody and they're in opposition, never let them know that they've injured you. Never let them know. Always, if you want to work successfully with those people and you want your ideas to survive, if you for a moment let them see that they have injured you, their guilt at having injured you will increase their hatred of you. Mm. And it's the same with your ideas. So you have to work constantly to make them feel that you value them and if you can do that I I look back the things that I'm proudest of in my life are not the artifacts that I've made but the changes that have occurred while I've been in environments they're not entirely my change but they are significant shifts Mm. and in education I see that as as very powerful that's why I continue to work for change but those things came because other people now take the credit for those and I don't mind Mm. I don't mind. In fact, I'll consciously do it. I'll, I'll put an idea forward. I'll wait until someone agrees with them, with it, let them expand a little, and then attribute the idea to them. Right. It will take root. And and when a group of people do that, attribute, they keep attributing the idea to them. Mm. Much more powerful, much more influential way of working. That's true. Much more impact. Much, much, much more, more impact. impact. So this is a question that a friend asked me a while ago, and I'm still battling with the answer to that which was if you had to choose between being a good artist or being a good teacher, which one would it be? And what's your answer on it, or thoughts on it, so to speak? If I answer that truthfully, Mm -hmm. I can't answer it as a binary. 
No. Because in truth, what I try to be is a mm. good man. So I try to, whatever I do, I try my really, my absolute best to do a good job of it. And whether that's, you know, panel beating my ute or reviewing a chapter in, an, in a PhD exegesis or painting a picture or making a film or making a present for someone I love, I try to do the very best I can. But my life has always been very integrated. Mm-hmm. So I don't even have a, um, I don't have a work-life balance because they're the same thing. I'm a very happy man. I have a really, really rich life, and that's made up of no singular thing. They're somehow all connected. No, they not somehow. They're absolutely all connected. What I do in this dimension of my life, I find so wonderful and so rewarding that it takes different forms. Right. In that sense. What are your thoughts on building resilience, yeah. on doing what you love to do for yeah. as long as possible? You know, when we were in our adolescence it's some things we're not ready to hear no at certain times yes. we're not i was talking before you know about my ego thing you see at 16 i couldn't have been told that no i would have thought the person had a different agenda and you know i, I would have gone you know my bleating system oh well you don't understand me i'm an artist or bugger off really you'd be more defensive yeah 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 but as a recently toughly learnt lesson if you're really going to try and facilitate change you're going to be alone a lot i've had to learn to look beyond immediate reward from people Mm. just because somebody praises you or gives you an award remember it's only the opinion of a moment and what has to count is that that thing you make or you do you have to be Mm. proud of the inherent value of it because that's the thing that's enduring so what happens when people applaud you buy your books give you good reviews you know screen your films all those things they are only the opinion of the moment it is the quality of the book or the film, or the learning environment that you make, that's the thing that matters. That's right. And sometimes you're going to do those things. And I've got a book over there of a children's book that will probably never be published. Spent three years on it. But I know it's good. Yeah. I know it's good, but it, it will probably never be published. Or it will be published when it will be published, right? Yeah, but it may never. Yeah. And yeah, it's still it right, never. because yeah. I know I did a really good job on it. Right. Yeah, I yeah. Got you, got you. Whereas sometimes we get, you know, we get praised for something and you go, Really? It was popularist and not very well done, but it just was its right time. If I had to stand at the end of my life and give back to the world the three things that I thought that were the most precious things I offered in my life, yeah. that would not be among them, mm-hmm. You know, even though it may have got lots of work. And sometimes people go, it's the fact that I raised uh, two children who were loved and went on to become full, rich human beings. Sometimes it's, a, it's people that we do. Sometimes it's a an artifact sometimes it's an environment sometimes it's an idea that's right yeah. i think that's how we get conditioned over time as well to think that value only exists in certain ways that raising kids or raising beautiful human beings mm-hmm. is not of value if it's mm-hmm. not get received accolades absolutely and it's a really difficult thing to do yeah you know we all bear the wounds and the glories of our raising. Mm. And we all repeat that, either as parents or as friends or as mentors. We're all mm. repeating things and trying to edit and work out the best way to do it. But to help grow human beings is an incredibly complex skill. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I think majority of people sort of battle with is not seeing themselves as creative people. I think in that similar sense as well, 
where creativity is reserved for only certain people who are either born with it or it's for certain vocations or it either only exists in certain platforms. But really, it is open and accessible in so many varieties for so many people. Yet there are a lot of people who live creative lives, do creative things, but don't see themselves as creative people. What are your thoughts on maybe shifting that and helping those people open up to themselves and to the idea of being creative? Again, it's a very good question. I think creativity is our normal default for thinking. That's right. Um, and w unfortunately, we get it tangled up with the arts, and it's not. It's got nothing more to do with the arts That's than right. it has to do with how you make a meal. Mm. It has no, it's not about the artistic or aesthetic quality of the thing. It's about whether you can push an idea beyond its ritual use. Mm. I oftentimes working with uh, working with organisations that um, where people go, oh, she's the creative one in the organisation. And I go, okay, so my job now is to show that person who is attributing creativity to somewhere else how it is that they are mm. creative in such a way that they go, that's true. And oftentimes I use a very simple thing. I just tell them a story, just a very simple story, but richly told. And then I'll ask them a question about something like, what did that child, what was that child wearing? Well, what, was the, what did that room look like? Describe that room. And I hadn't done it in the storytelling because they co-create. So when we listen to a story, mm. we co-create all the time. It's just a standard thing. And human beings are wired. Absolutely. We're wired to do it. Yeah. And, and then you go, but I never told you that. So what was that that you were doing? Weren't you creating the story alongside me when I was doing that? And you can see people think, well, and you go, you know, if I had told five people in the room the same story at the same time, you would have all have seen that hospital ward differently. You would have all have seen the the light in that marketplace differently mm. because you naturally create. And every time that you run into a problem and the logical way doesn't get you around it and you manage to get around it, you're being creative. You cre being creative. It's right. normal. Yes. It's, it's actually not a special privilege. It's a normal thing. It's so, how you address problems and how... Absolutely. That's all. Which uh, are all around us. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had a twin sister. She died a couple of years ago. But we grew up, as sometimes happens with twins, hating being compared. Yeah. So she was seen as the bright kid at school. She was beautiful and, and urbane. And she was the golden kid. And I was the strange one, you know. And, and in a way, although we never said it explicitly to each other, we created a high level of difference between ourselves as people. But in fact, so she was incredibly gifted at working with people. Mm. So she went on to be working in government. She rose CEO. She became very, very effective and rose into academia. And I went into the arts. Mm. But in fact, when she died, she was designing and building her house. And she made brilliant decisions, and I had become a professor at a university and was working with change in companies. So we were actually the same, but the thing that she taught me was I kept thinking, how is it that Katrina is this good? Well, what it was, she was very creative with people. Mm. She didn't treat everybody as a, as a template. No. So when something yeah. was going wrong, she'd say, let's go and have a cup of tea together. And she yes. would take that person and she would just talk and listen and reflect back. She could get, she could change people's positions. She could dig them out of corners. She could restore things. Mm. She was very creative with people because mm. she understood 
You can read all the textbooks on change agency that you want. The textbook will never give you the template. It's only your own creative potential. That's right. That's the only thing that will do. The most the textbook can do is maybe put an arm around your shoulder. There are no five easy steps to anything. It was interesting. I was, uh, a little while ago, I was asked to go and um, do a talk at a, it was a rural kind of uh, group. These were all young mothers. Mm. And I got there an hour early because I'd got the time wrong. This was a daylight saving thing. I'd got the time wrong. And I was watching them with their kids. They were hugely creative with these kids. It didn't mean they were sitting down with crayons. Yeah. It's that they kids were all quite different. They weren't using a templated approach to bringing up children. They were constantly creative. They were constantly on their feet, looking at the situation, responding to the situation, responding to what came out of it. And yet, when I sat down and started to talk to them about creativity, I said to them, put up your hand if on a 1 to 10 scale, you, if 10 was very creative and 1 was not, you would put yourself over 8. And none of them did. Mm-hmm. And I had just seen them And I wasn't being euphoric. It was just very true. Simple observation showed they were incredibly creative. But they thought it was that you could sit down with your child and draw a good picture with them. So it's that Mm -hmm. confusion with the art. Even business owners who are very successful in their business, who keep redirecting me to another member in their organization who is quote-unquote more creative because they do illustration, but they themselves, they don't think they're appropriate for the conversation. It's like you've designed a business. Even that is not considered as creative value. Absolutely. (laughs) And, And the simple point is we all know artists, writers, people working in the arts who in fact are not creative at all. Mm. They have a formula that, that, that works well and they rework and rework and rework it. And we know that in ourselves. Sometimes I go, you know, yeah. that you've not really moved that forward. It looks good and people yeah. are going to go, oh, that looks so great, you're so artistic. And you go, yeah, you can call it artistic, but let's not call it creative. Because it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I didn't take a risk. I didn't re-question my own formula here. I yes. just reconstituted my formula. Mm, that's not creative. I'm just being artistic. It's not the same thing. What do you feel about this notion of having to choose one thing when you do enjoy many things? Because I think sometimes that's a, that's a tension that a lot of us can experience. So I think this relates to a question you asked before. My sense is that um, I don't see things as a binary. I don't that's think right. things yep. as a choice. Yep. But I would say that in the last 15 years, I've learned to try and say yes to things. And that means that you find yourself experiencing coming into contact with people and ideas and situations that you might not normally have done. And mm-hmm. some of those are uncomfortable, but I try to say yes. And I also have learned if you try to be generous in the world, mm-hmm. you normally have a better life. It's true. And so rather than seeing life made up of discrete singular things, mm-hmm. it's kind of like an integrated, I'm going to sound like a new age hippie here, but a, <laughs> an integrated rhythm of stuff. Yes. Because nothing really, in the end, works in silos. No, no, right? no, 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 Everything no, no. is parallel. There are a few physical things. There are a certain number of daylight hours in a day. Mm. You know, there are um, the human body is only capable of some things. And sometimes you get a rude awakening. Uh, people go, don't you burn out, don't you burn out. Hard work doesn't make me burn out. Stress makes me burn out, and stress is normally emotionally linked. Mm. So if I was in, um, I've been very lucky in my life with relationships, but I have been in one that was emotionally fraught. It was emotionally really, really hard. Well, that caused a lot of stress. Mm. I wasn't working hard, but emotionally I was just, poof, it was a nightmare. That, that made me crash. Right. Working passionately on a movie and and a, a book and and 
you know, I've got 14 PhD students mm. at the moment. It, it's just because I, you know, and the university goes, you know, the average is five. And you go, <laughs> yeah, but they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. I can't say no. no I can't say, say yes. no. no that's right. <laughs> and, uh, but you are, but then a rude awakening comes when you go, actually, there are not an, enough hours in the day to look after 20 people doing PhDs. No. There's not. And so I have to learn that mm. because sometimes I, th- I think oftentimes because if we live a life with a high level of creativity and we are used to bringing things into being because we will them, we just think. That's right. a- and that, so sometimes for us it's a rude awakening when we go, you could will them, but do you know, there are only a certain number of hours in a day. There literally are only a certain number of hours. Mm. And you can't say, even though you want to and you try to, if you say yes to everything, the world out there doesn't know what your capacity is, so they're no. going to keep asking. That's right. So you better wake up and work out truly what your capacity is so when you say yes to something, you can bring value to it. Mm. Because if you... And so now I've had to moderate my saying yes by going... Can I do a good job with this? That's if right. I say yes, can I do a good job? Yeah. You know? and, uh, so that so would be, say, how you balance all your different projects yeah. is asking that question, yeah. can I do a good job yeah. if I give it this much amount that's, of time? That's it now. If that's not, where I'm at. how can I make yeah. this work? And I might be wrong. Maybe in yeah. 10 years' time I'll go, oh, shit, that wasn't actually right. But at the moment that seems to be working for me okay. much better than back in the day when I said uh, I say yes to everything or mm. preceding that where I went, I'll just work out. I'll only do what I like, mm. or before that, of going, um, um, I've got to really look after my work-life balance, and I have to limit the number of things I'm doing. So I've been through all those stages, right. and um, this is just where I'm standing now. You just have to look at where you are and what mm. are your priorities mm. at one given point in time. Going back to this idea of not thinking in binary, would you say that could be an approach to, again, encouraging people who don't think of themselves as creative, to being open up to, say, more variety, saying a bit more of yes, if not yes all the time to everything, um, and not thinking in in binary as a way to move out of seeing themselves that way? So one of the things I try to do as an educator is not to give advice. But I do, I will use questioning mm. and then feedback what someone said to show them that they're creative. Right. And the thinking. So behind me, there's a whiteboard okay. in my office. All I use that for is when I'm talking to someone, asking questions, is writing what they're saying. Right. And then they look up and you go, so is this what you're saying? And you, and you connect one, two, four, and seven. Mm-hmm. And you go, is this what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah. And all you've done is show them that they're actually, all you're doing is reflecting back what they've not been able to see reflected back. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so for growing creativity, growing the awareness of growth. So I don't think you've grown, you're growing the awareness, awareness and yeah. with that, the permission mm. um, is simply showing people what they naturally do, how they naturally right. disobey, if you like, productively gotcha. disobey to get something. Gotcha, gotcha. Beautiful. I want to touch on a little bit about your recent book, Disobedient Teaching, which talks about disobedient teaching as a way of fostering more creative thinking and in education. But there's a lot of us who have come out of that education system, and there's a lot of us continuing to come out of that education still. In that sense, how can we be perhaps disobedient learners and start moving out of that mold that we've been conditioned into? It's a very, very perceptive question. And I think for many teachers, that's a 
It's not one of the ones you see in the textbook, but it lies at the bottom of her heart when you're working with people. So it's a lot of work to do it. So you can ignore it or pay lip service to it, or you can genuinely try to deal with it. So I think learning is emotional before it's cognitive, before it's intellectual. I think the most profound learning is emotional. Mm. And the thing that people know the most about is themselves. And yet strategy is also the thing they know very little about. But to, to grow it, I've found that you try to always relate any learning environment or learning something you're trying to deal with back to the person. So you say to them, so if, if you're trying to teach something obscure like a hegemony, you go, what was it like for fat girls at school? Tell me what it was like. Do you remember a girl at school who was fat or a girl at school who was a slut? Or can you remember a guy at school that everybody picked on? He was the joke of the school. And so you go from their memory and then you pull that forward and then part of the way they go as they're talking, they bring it forward, you go, you know, there's a thing called a hegemony, which is about this. It's when there's a dominant idea that takes root and in fact, sometimes even the victims become the police for it. So the girls who were cruelest to that girl about her body shape were probably girls who were frightened about their body shape. That's right. And, and so by tr tying it into the personal and, and bringing that forward, you can get people into very complex thinking. And that's the same with creativity. We are most familiar with the personal. So if you say to someone, tell me a story, they go, oh, shit, shit, you know, and, <laughs> and you go... Can you think of something that happened to you when you were a kid that was unfair, that was really unfair? Okay, most people can get there. Mm. And then they go, am I prepared to tell that in this setting? You know, That's so that right. their, their editor steps in. But, yeah. but if you can get a high trust and you can work with something like that, so you get something that's got an emotional link, and then normally you go, what would you say to yourself if you could turn around and, and sit down on the edge of the bed with you at that age? What would you tell yourself? You know, or what, or so mm. you, you keep you keep it in the personal for us, and you can break huge ground from there. And oftentimes inside life experiences, you can actually help people identify when they were being creative. They don't think it is. If you were different, because everybody experiences being different, what were you different to? So what weren't you doing that was the same as everybody else? And you go, so that was you were living your life differently. You were solving problems. Your values were different. Mm -hmm. And you can come in through there to creativity because people have the lived, they haven't thought about it that way. But when you go, um, you didn't care about wearing the right branded shoes and so you were seen as not being a cool kid. Mm. Okay, so what were the values you had around wearing shoes? You go, what do you mean? You go, well, what, what were good shoes to you? Yeah. And so you, you, you start off with something as simple as difference. And then step by step through them, you start taking that into, into creativity. Because essentially creativity is when we don't follow the ritual and logic of something, mm. and yet we get a solution on it. One of the powerful ways with that is that you, make, you show people that creativity can be costly. So being socially creative can be very costly. Yes. You know, so it's not a um, we we turn creativity into a euphoric thing. Mm. We go, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it? No, it's bloody well not wonderful. Sometimes it's very tough. Mm. It's very tough, and it can have awful costs. You know. So people who are creative socially can pay very high prices. Yes. You know, someone who's who looks at the cool kids and goes, you know, they're in this very tight little box. They they're all busily sucking up to cool. They're killing off everything that's different about them. 
So you become a nerd or a wanker or, or a, you know, she's, she's just not one of the cool kids. Mm. Essentially, you're taking more permission for yourself. You're prepared to live your life more creatively. I mean, the tyranny of cool is a, is a frightening thing. It's yes. the opposite to living life creatively. It's, and, and what happens is it also becomes the people who are cool police it. Mm. They police it. And normally it's a sign of a wounded society is that the victims will police so cool kids are normally the fiercest policing of other kids. Yes. And yet their, their whole cool is prescribed. It's prescribed by the media. It's prescribed by sometimes by ideologies, political ideologies. They learn not how to be themselves, but to be a cardboard cutout of something else. And then mm. they punish people who don't do it. So I guess, if I have this right, would you say in either of those spectrum, whether you're a cool kid or not, so to speak, is to really unpick your own experiences yeah. so, and your own emotions so yeah. you can st really start looking at it from a different perspective. So if I come back to it as a one-line answer, mm. it is if you're going to grow creativity in people, teach them how to question. Ask them questions about what they're doing and how they see themselves. And ask them questions about their life. Use questioning to help people uncover those things. Yes. So a great educator mm. is a great questioner. Right. And that's why when I saw the questions that you said, that's why I wrote back to you straight away and said, wow, these are really good questions. Because great questioning helps us. If you've got a friend who's a great questioner, they're going to help you immensely. That's right. Yeah. And so that's the, that. if you want to help people find their creativity, become a very good questioner. Because I guess nothing new exists out of questions. Absolutely. Right? And advice does not do that. No, that's true. Yeah. So... One of the things that I've been talking about with uh, a friend of mine is that when you choose to do something you love as your job, it can sometimes feel quite challenging or it can be easy to lose sight of why you love it because you're so caught up in you know, just getting through the grind, so to speak. What helps you stay connected and remind yourself of why you love what you do, even That's on those days that are possibly... That's such a good question. I don't even know if I know the answer mm. to that. Well, what if I was to reframe the question as like, what helps you maintain joy in your work? Okay, so that's a really good question. I stay away from things that generate high levels of unproductive conflict. Mm. So if I'm working with somebody in an organization and there's somebody who's very functioning with a high level of damage around them, my general view is I'll state my position twice to them directly. Yeah. And after that, I just avoid them. I do everything in my power to avoid them. And then I work with the people who are, are being hurt by them. I work with them to reinforce their sense of value. And so what I've found is throwing yourself up against that person when they're operating like a combine harvester mm -hmm. is just going to get yourself turned into mincemeat. So look at the people, other people around you and start looking after them. Mm. Not, not to plot a coup against that person, but take their power, take some of that power away from them by making sure you're building up the agency of the other people. It doesn't have to be in opposition to them, yes. but you've because I've found in situations, and you know, I've I've been the head of, of very large organisations, mm -hmm. and I, I I've learned the hard way. The world is not black and white. It's very complex, and you have to face profound questions like, is a good person always right? Quite deep, 
deep mm. ideas. And you, um, so we can live our life avoiding those by finding a place in a hierarchy where all we have to do is perform. But if you go into the agency with people, yes. if you're working with people, you do have to face those things. Right. And they're not, you can't be a fundamentalist in there. You can't. If you're going to be effective, organizations are not human. They're not human. They're only populated with human beings. So you can't have a caring organization. All you can have is caring people within an organization. So while I try to avoid conflict, Mm. I also know that part of being a functioning human being is that you're going to be in some situations that are going to... You've got to be prepared if you're working with human beings. You're going to get your heart broken and you're going to break other people's hearts, you are. It's not all a television story that ends up happy in the end. It doesn't. And so as a human being, you have to come to terms with the cost of that. The trouble is when we tell people about the things we do at work, we edit it. We edit all that stuff out, but that's actually part of it. So how do you avoid stress? I can't completely say I've found a formula for that. I don't think it's possible. Not if you're working with human beings. But you can stumble through with good intentions and the ongoing forcing yourself to question Mm -hmm. your own motivations and the things you're doing you can do that when you lose the ability to question yourself you can end up behaving in a ruthless manner yes you know sorry i know that was a bit vague and wandering because it's not a clear i don't have a clear answer to it i just i stumble through with that stuff well i guess it's something that in an essence, I think maybe that's the nature of it, that is to stumble through it and just be mindful of your own intentions. Your and actions, to question. And, and, and to question. And question yourself. yourself exactly. You have to question. If you, if you stop questioning yourself, and this is sometimes when you see people who actually become ineffective, yeah. is that they actually believe that they are the divine truth. Mm. That's, when, that's when it runs into problems. That's right. Well, no one's perfect, mm. right? Mm. And... Life is learning, mm. so it's, it's not like we are immune to mistakes or failures. Mm. The only thing we can do is question it, grow from it, and try and do better the next day. Yeah. And try, try and make some atonement when we've done damage that we realize was wrong. Mm. Sometimes I have to clean up messes yes. when I didn't get something right, you know. And um, I'm sorry is not enough. I'm sorry, it's not enough. Yeah, or someone going, I take total responsibility. And you go, no, you're not. No, you're not taking total responsibility. You're saying you are, but what is the thing that you are physically doing to show that you are taking responsibility for that? That is true. Sounds like you've had many occasions which have been opportunities for growth in that sense. Can you recall some which have been most profound for you? And how have you taken responsibility, not just said you've taken responsibility, or moved past them? I can tell you about a recent one. Yeah. I'm just now beginning to make a feature film that's taken 10 years to get across the line, 11 mm. years to get across the line. Most feature films never get made, yes. you know, only a tiny, tiny percentage. And my work sits in New Zealand, in my own country, it sits outside of the popular format. You know, it's mm. not euphoric stories of Kiwi battlers who come good in the end. They're yes. not. They take yeah. difficult situations. And... I'd spent about four years writing it, and the Film Commission recommended that I got a script editor. That's someone who helped, has helped you develop a screenplay. Mm. I listened to his advice. I listened to everybody's advice, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm a newbie with a feature film. You know, I need to listen to lots of, lots of advice. And I lost my film. I ended up writing a piece of crap. It just looked like a piece of television. And I said to my producer, look, I don't even want to make this. And mm. she said, but you'll get funding for it. You will yeah. get it made. And I said, but... 
I don't even want to be associated with it. It's, it's terrible. And she said, well, that's how you're going to stand your best choice. And this is what all the advisors were saying. You know, that, that. Yeah. And um, I pulled it, and I was exhausted, and I was sad because I'd made something that wasn't – it would get funded, but it wasn't good. Mm. And I always remember I went down to my garden, and I was, I was digging in the garden, and, uh, and I just thought, shit, I lost it. I lost my own – I lost the story. I, mm. I lost the thing. And, and now I have a choice. I can get funding and get this made, or I can pull it, and all those years of work will have gone up in smoke. I was learning how tough things sometimes are, mm. how really, really tough. And uh, a year later, I went over to help my brother working on his house, mm. building in Australia. And uh, while it was there, I thought, I'm going to go back, I'm going to write this as I really want it. I'm going to write the film I really mm. want to. Now, writing a screenplay is not writing a screenplay. You're imagining a world and bringing a whole world into being. It's it's incredibly difficult. Incre mm. One of the hardest, much harder than anything I do in academia. Wow. Much, much harder. It took me about six months, and I wrote the film that I wanted to make. And it went into review. The first lot of reviews came back and went, oh, no, it's too much of a difficult film. You know, people won't want to watch it. And I changed my producer. And I said when I got the new producer, look, you've got to believe it. Don't, if, if you don't believe in this stuff, don't work with me. Because mm -hmm. sometimes I've even discovered that I need somebody in my side of the yes. pen, just sometimes. Even though I normally think I'm so quite self-possessed, sometimes you do need somebody in there. And then they took it. The screenplay, they, they had it at Cannes, and they found um, a European uh, sales agent who loved it, who just said, this is an amazing script. We'll support it. Mm. We'll, we'll support the sales of it through Northern Europe. And came back to New Zealand, and they went, this is an amazing script. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not what they were saying before. And so I faced a, t a time when I almost lost the thing. I, I, always, I can see myself almost cinematically sitting there in the garden, crouched down, digging in the hostas, and thinking, this thing that's taken me all these years, I've lost it. Yeah. And then going, you cannot allow yourself to be that weak. Some things have to be brought into being. Mm. They just are. I mean, I've, I've written things and done things that I know won't ever be brought into being. I can yeah. feel their intrinsic weakness. But when you feel something is right, you have to do it. You don't really have a choice unless you're prepared to live less than a full life, a rich mm. life. And so to summarize... The difficulty was, I thought, because it was intrinsically good, that it, it would get support, and it didn't. Yes. And so I was left, in the end, with something that fell apart, and I fell apart with it. Mm. And I had to find from somewhere the strength to go, if this is worth it, then you have to forget all the op opinion, mm. and you have to go back and you have to do it, even though it will take you another two years to do, and there's no guarantee you have to, to do, do it. it. Yeah. When you know what's right, you can't That's right. evade it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Actually, that would lead into this question of having honesty and integrity over your own work, um, but at the same time also accommodating for the audience and environment you are creating for which can be rather tricky. How would you summarize trying to balance being true to what you create, but also being mindful of the audience that you are creating for and the environment that you're creating for? That's a very complex question. So, uh, it's very easy. Well, it's comparatively easy to be true to yourself. So that way you end up with artists going, yes, I did something that was true to myself. That's right. But nobody liked it. No, nobody mm. related to yes, it. And yes. you go, well, really, you've just done a big wink. 
you know, sorry, but you know, you've just yeah. you've done something that's very wonderful. You've explored the meaning of your soul. That's fine. That's good. But don't claim that that is going to have any profound influence it, because right. you haven't thought about the fact that you're also trying to create a communicative text. You're trying to mm. communicate something, and whether that is an idea in a meeting or whether that is a, a feature film, you're trying to connect to the human condition in an effort to get us thinking about what it is to be human. That's right. right? Or you've got an idea for a, a vision about how where your business might go mm. in such a way that the business might actually move that way, not because you were true to yourself, but because the idea resonated and could be seen and understood as benefiting other That's people right. going to get benefit of it. For me, the answer comes into the thing that we started off with, is that if my ego is mm. unquestioned, there is a chance that I create something that is self-possessed and self-fulfilling, but not fulfilling to other people. So I have to think, and I do this all the time, I go, what if I was 16 years old and living in Potoru and I saw this film? Would this film talk to me? What does it need to do to talk more effectively to me? Mm. So it's that other part of ourselves, which is the outward-oriented person who goes, who removes the ego and goes, so what does this need to do as a communicative text? It doesn't mean that you have to do something that will fall into the arms of the expected. Yes. It, it can be, how could I get this to work effectively as a disrupting device? Mm. Yeah. But you have to know something more than yourself to be able to do that. It has to relate to the environment and the audience that you're yes, creating yes. for, right? But it doesn't mean you have to pamper to them. No. But it no. does mean that you've got to know how to ask a question with a piece of work right. in such a way that people will naturally ask that question of themselves. That's why when I wrote Disobedient Teaching, I you know, I spend a lot of time writing turgid academic docu- you know, essays mm. for journals and stuff, and, and that's all very good. But with that book, I thought, you know, let's imagine there's 20 minutes before the bell rings. You're sitting in the staff room, it's a wet Friday. Everybody's tired, and you just have 15 minutes to talk about an idea. How might you do that? So I wrote that with an imaginary teacher sitting beside me on a staff room chair with a cup of tea that's going cold. And that book was written with a very clear focus away from me into how could we talk. And that's why you see in the book it goes, the word you is used a lot. You know, I tried to write it as if somebody was actually talking to you, cared about you, mm. and actually saw you as of value, saw that they, they might have a whole lot of ideas they're going to share, but they actually saw that you were reading the book. They weren't writing the book. And it's a different orientation. I, I could sense that from the book. It was really easy for me to get into the concepts and the journey, I think, because of that. If I've done it well, that will work. If it doesn't do that, then I haven't done it very well. It comes from the thing of, you know, where I have trouble giving advice, of how do you write a book about change without giving advice, and yet you're going to cram it full of ideas and critique. Uh, You know, I tried to write that book almost 20 years ago. It was called Virus. I knew two-thirds of the way through it wasn't working, but I was trying to give advice. It doesn't work. Because I was thinking all about me and my ideology and not enough. I wasn't thinking about the person who was reading the book. So one of the things I think when you are being a disobedient thinker or a learner or a doer of some sort, I think owning the way you do things, the way you create things, 
can be a challenge because of the sense of not being good enough or comparison or not doing it like how the successful people seem to be doing it. Yeah, how can we start really owning and being confident in our own process, regardless of what our external environment might be doing? Well, I'm not always confident. Yeah. I'm not always confident. Um, you know, when I do a painting, it invariably starts at night because I get up in the morning to do it, but I'm so scared of it mm. that I'll clean my house. So you can tell <laughs> when I've got a painting going on because my house is spotless. There I we do... go, everyone. Well be inks also procrastinates. Yeah, <laughs> and procrastination is just fear. It's just yes, fear. That's you know? right. So I'm not confident, and I would never, ever offer, um, presume to offer anyone advice about the confidence. So then you go, so how come things get made? How come so many things get made? Well, it comes back to something we talked about just briefly right at the beginning. It's joy mm. and wonderment. The remembering that's remembering that sometimes there are joy and wonderment at yes. that. And although I'm a very fierce critic of myself, there have been times when I've done a painting and I've propped it up on the chair and the next morning I've gone down and looked at, and looked at my own hands to try and understand how I did how that was done. Just occasionally that's happened and yeah. I've just thought, fuck, sorry, <laughs> but that's what I thought, you know. Or you read something, uh, yeah. like after I wrote that book, I hadn't read it until the other day, and I read something and I thought, you know, that's right, that is right, that's yeah. absolutely right. That's. Um, or you watch somebody finally bring in a thesis that they've battled with for, say, a master's thesis for maybe 10 months, and it's a thing of intellectual beauty, and you look at it and you go... Do you know, you've done a wonderful job of that. Yeah. Wonderful job. And remembering those things doesn't give confidence, but reminds you that those things can happen. Mm. This is why when you're working with someone whose self-confidence has been destroyed, that's why that's such a huge challenge. Mm. And it can be destroyed in two ways. There's the way we normally know about, which is where someone has lost belief in themselves. Mm because they've been told they're no good. But there's the opposite. When people have been, they live under the tyranny of success, so they've learned to disparage or become cynical about anything that will challenge them. Mm. They don't realise it's a toxic realm, but they don't grow. Oftentimes they're operating in, apparently at very high levels. Well, also I think sometimes we get conditioned into think that once we achieve success, we can change things. Mm -hmm. But it's so the other way around. You have to change things to get real achievement or success. And success is not a finite state. No. It's no. not a finite state. It's progressive, yeah. right? And it's also, it's not stable. It doesn't mean because you reach success, you're going to be successful for the rest of your life. No. We dwell in a life that has moments of, if you like, success. But, but again, I know that mm -hmm. success is not an artifact or a system or a, a fixed thing. It is something that is constantly mutable. And it can be subjective as well, right? Absolutely. What I consider a success, Absolutely. someone might not yeah. consider, yeah. Yeah. because I might be considering my own progress yeah. as success. And, and, you know, oftentimes people, when, they, when you get framed in society as successful, they imagine that you live a life of unrelenting success. Mm -hmm. And... This isn't my idea. I once heard it on an interview on Radio New Zealand, but it's, you know how sometimes you hear something that stops you in your track? Oh, they yeah, were talking yeah. to a, um, a musician, and he had just won a number of big awards. And they said, you know, so how is it for you being successful? And he said, before fame, chopping wood, after fame, chopping wood. <laughs> and, yep, that's so true. What everyone doesn't see is yeah. that 90% of the time, you're chopping wood. That's you're chopping right. wood. Well, I think that's um, the other thing as well, that you don't really 
get exposed to people's journeys Next and step. how far they've come, how the whether it's success, their skill, whatever they do, creative thinking, is that it's been practiced and nurtured over a long period of time for them to get to that point rather than them being endowed at birth with the specific talent and they're just Absolutely. born with deservingness Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> over it. I remember um, posting recently about Ed Sheeran, mm-hmm. you know, popular mus- mm-hmm. musician, and he's like, oh, and he did an interview and he was talking about how everyone seems to think that, oh, you must be so gifted, you're born with musical talents, you're such a natural. Yeah. And he's like, hang on, people, here's a recording of me when I was 14 singing busking with my guitar. And he played it, and he sounded absolutely atrocious. It was mortifyingly atrocious. And you were like, this is the same guy. Yeah. (laughs) He did a beautiful music video not long ago, which had a lot of his... It was archive shots of him. I was a little kid and everything. This geeky, red-haired kid kind of looking odd. And I just thought, yeah, that's actually what it is. A lot of us, a lot of people who become, in the end, society sees them as successful, are actually outsiders, they have had to ask themselves the difficult questions other people didn't and that caused them to be taken to another place Mm. sometimes they developed great empathy for Mm. things without or sometimes they began to understand how the human condition actually works by necessity they had to understand that to survive you know and so oftentimes those there is a kind of success which is a a safe success but there's another kind of success that is immensely human Mm. and it's often something when you start digging with those people they're outsiders they're outsiders what would you say to anyone still in the myths of searching for what gives them joy and freedom to be who they really are we're not sure what is it that they want to pursue maybe that we all live our lives like that Mm. Again, as I said before, I don't think success is an end state. Mm. It's something that we experience in the fabric of our life. Um, one of the things we're trained to do is to see success as an ultimate achievement, but it's not. It can't be that. Yes. Can you imagine the complete fallacy of somebody who lived from the time they were 36 onwards, unrelenting success? It doesn't mm. exist. It doesn't exist. It can't exist. We will always be facing failure, success, and mediocrity Mm. as part of a continuum. There's success that is the acknowledgement of others. That's one kind of success, which I would argue is not really success. Mm. And then there's the success of bringing into being things that you believe are of value in the world. Mm. That's a different kind of success. And that's the one that I would tend to think is successful. But... Certainly in my life, that's not been a consistent thing. It's not something that I reached by the age of 40. You know, And I believe that when I'm 96, I'm still going to be as uneven as I am now. I know. think that's also the, the tension, right, that everyone initially thinks everything needs to be figured out by 30. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that everything has absolutely. a time limit. Yep. Um, and all you go, you know, it's not, and you won't be a failure because it's not. No. Yeah. No. It actually gets better after 30. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you surrender, it's like, oh, well, I didn't achieve what I thought I'd achieve. Might as well let it go. (laughs) What has helped you develop more courage and confidence in your journey and work so far? Well, something that I never thought. When I was a kid, I didn't understand it. As an adult, I'm really glad that it happened. 
before I even had a word for it, I knew that I was gay, but I didn't know what that actually, because I, I brought up in a little rural district, mm -hmm. and this was back in the day when, you know, you were put into jail for seven years. And so when I was at school, when I got sprung, I didn't apologise for it. I just went, yeah, so I am. Well, that was not the right response. You were supposed to either rush away and get a girl pregnant as fast as you could, or, you know, you was, and I just went, so? Well, it went down like a bucket of cold sick, you know. And it was a really painful time to grow up because I thought I was the only gay person in the world, mm. you know, or there was very, like a lot of information was suppressed back in those days. Yes. And then and then occasionally you'd see gay characters on TV or something and they were awful, they were they were vicious or they were tragic or they were, you know, and you kept thinking. And then you saw that they were all drag queens and you go, but I like driving tractors and repairing my ute and I just, you know, it, I don't even fit there. But what it taught me at a very young age was how fear can become such a savage thing in people who are not by nature cruel, but their fear will cause them to do terrible things. That's right. And I learned that as I lived, I learned that on a very visceral level. And then I learned, you had to learn very quickly, because I had friends who committed suicide, you had to learn really quickly that you have got to get control over your life. Mm. You have got to get control over your life because the cost is phenomenal if you don't. So, you know, by the time I was 17, two of my friends had topped themselves. I was heavily into drugs, you know, all, and you just go, shit, the only person going to drive this tractor is you. You'd better start, you'd better start taking control of it. And so in a way yes. I look back mm -hmm. now and, and I'm grateful for that. It was, a lo it was lonely and tough, but it taught me at a very young age to see what, how human beings could work. And how you could survive and take responsibility for your survival. Because right. there's no entitlement. No. You can't go, I deserve better. You go, that's not what's coming. No. You, you can't sit there and bleat and go, I deserve better. It's not what's going to happen. You better go and get better. Yes. Yeah. We'll finish off with a quote by Ernest Hemingway where he says, live the full life of the mind, exhilarated by new ideas, intoxicated by the romance of the unusual. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I don't like Ernest Hemingway very much. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll be quite honest. He's one of the most dishonest people I know, I've read about. But well, what would you know? Interesting, I picked that one. <laughs> but, you know, as I said before, I'm a very happy man, yeah. and I have a wonderful life. But I try to say yes, even to the things that I don't know. And that seems, for me, that's been a very good thing. Put it this way, two very unusual things maybe that get mixed together, but they have worked for me. Optimism and common sense, yes. with optimism in front. So not optimism and stupidity. Optimism then working, so how could we make this work? How could I write this book? so that would work? How could I make this film so... How could I design this learning environment so that could work? And those two things are actually really good mates if you bring them together. Yeah. Optimism and common sense. It, I had to look back to understand what it was, but yeah. they've helped me to live and continue to live a very joyous life. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place they to They were very, it. very good questions. So that's it for this episode of Curiously Creative. We hope it has sparked a little, or a lot, of creativity and curiosity in you. Curiously Creative is a production by Curiously Creative. Who would have thought? 
So if you'd like to know our comings and goings and check out some more inspiring content, head on over to curiouslycreative.co.nz. Until the next episode, with lots of love and a massive splash of joy, Akriti, your creative curiosity advocate. Oh, and if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a comment on iTunes as it helps more people find these conversations.